We're in uh, the last day or the last Sunday for the Life of David series. We're in 1 Chronicles 29. So I know that's kind of like a curveball. We've been in 1 and 2 Samuel for the last eight weeks. But today we're landing the plane in 1 Chronicles 29. So I know that, uh, that it's good for a series to come to an end. When I look at my son, my 16-year-old son, whose name is Joseph, and I look him in the eye and said, David, will you go get something for me? And so he got up walked out the door, and we just found him this morning. So that's how bad he was really ticked off. So uh, that's a joke. Not a joke. I called him David, which is like, dude, that, there's something wrong with that. So it's just a good sign that I've been soaking in one character for three months. It's time to move on. Amen? So you guys may not feel like that, but I kind of feel like that. I'm sure my son Joseph does. So, yeah, we are uh, laying the plane in First Chronicles 29. Kind of a different passage for us to kind of end uh, the life of David, but I think it's really timely for us as a church. So good stuff here. So if you're able, I encourage you to stand with me in honor of reading God's word. So we're going to actually read verses 6 through 20. I think what is in your bulletin is verses 10 through 22. And so um, you can look on the screen in those few verses, and then if you've got to go back to the bulletin, you can go back to the bulletin. But uh, I feel like it's good for us to kind of add those few verses at the beginning to kind of get a better feel of the context. So, so yeah, starting in verse 6 to verse 20, hear the word of the Lord. Then the leaders of families, the officials of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. They gave toward the work on the temple of God's 5,000 talents and of, of, of gold. Sorry, I'm... I'm Losing my place. Gave the temple of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold and then 10,000 talents of silver and 18,000 talents of bronze and 100,000 talents of iron. And, he, and who had precious stones and any who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Jehiel and the Gershonite. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David, the king, he also rejoiced greatly. And so David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, and this is what he said. Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom you are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor comes from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And who are we, my people, that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight, as were all of our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O Lord our God, for as for all of this abundance that we have provided for the building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand. All of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. And all of these things have I given willingly and with honest intent. And now I've seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. And, O oh Lord, God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever. Keep their hearts loyal to you. 
And give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, requirements, and decrees, and to do everything to build this palatial structure for which I have provided. And then David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord your God. And so they all praised the Lord, the God of their fathers, and they bowed low and fell prostrate before the Lord and the King. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we give thanks to you this morning for the season of fall. Man, what a beautiful display of your goodness and your beauty. I mean, it's just so gorgeous to see the changes of the leaves on the trees. God, thank you for that, Lord. And God, I pray for our our teams that are in Greece now, that are serving our missionaries through just giving them a time of rest and refreshment. I pray that the word of God encourage them. I pray for my brother Jamal as he's preaching uh, most of the nights there. God, just just encourage him, bless him, strengthen him, and may his words be uh, your words to those people there, God. And just may it just be a a renewing of their spirits so they can go out into the field and serve you with, with joy and with strength. And just like we ask every time we gather together on Sunday mornings and we read your word, God, help us to understand what you're saying in this passage. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, so here's what I kind of hope to do this morning by God's grace. I, my prayer is I, I want to pull out just one kind of theme in this chapter. In chapter 29, I, I think there's a, a theme that the, the writer's trying to get across to us. And I, and I tried my best to kind of articulate and show you that theme through kind of how I read the passage of Scripture and the way I raise my voice and that kind of stuff. And so my desire is to show that theme. And then as a result of that theme, I want to I pose before us like a couple of questions. Just two questions for us to think on today and, and Lord willing throughout this week. So bring out a theme that we see in chapter 29 and then out of that theme, two questions. So if you're, if you're just joining us or even if you're not, you know, if you've been with us you know, during this nine-week series of Life of David, this seems a little out of place. It just seems like a like I'm jumping into the middle of a movie and I'm going like, what in the world is going on here? And so just kind of help catch us up on the context. What's, what's happening here is that David has a desire. He has a desire to build a, a permanent place for the ark, of the ark of God, which is the Ark of the Covenant, this, 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 this presence of God. Like right now it's just, you know, basically in a, in a portable tent. And so David has a desire to build a, temp, a temple, a building, a, a palatial structure, as we saw here in chapter 29, a permanent place where God's people can come and sacrifice to the Lord as well as to learn uh, from the Lord, where this Ark of the Covenant can be. And so a prophet comes to David and says, man, I love your desires. I love your heart. I affirm that, but you're not the one that's going to build it. Your son is. So the one that's going to follow David as a king, King Solomon, is going to be the one that's going to build this temple. And so what David does as one of the last things he does before he dies is he wants to make sure that he provides the materials, the sort of the financing to make sure this building gets built after he dies. And so that's what we see here. And we didn't read these verses, but the first five verses of this chapter is David sharing with the people what he's giving to this building to make sure this gets built. And so we see in in verse 2 that he's going to provide gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and all kinds of stones 
We see in verse three that David's also not providing just these things, but he's also providing some from his own personal treasure. The, the best way I can kind of interpret that is own private stash. Does anybody have a private stash that no one else knows about? Okay, great, no one. Awesome, and really connecting well this morning. Uh, but this is kind of like his own personal possessions here, personal treasury. So it's, it's different than what he's giving in verse 2. So in verse 3, we see that he's given 3,000 talents of gold, which is 225,000 pounds of gold. This is out of his own personal treasury. He's given 7,000 talents of silver, which comes to like 525,000 pounds of of silver. And so if that's like gibberish to you or a foreign language to you, let me put it in, in terms that we all get. This in today's value would be $5 billion. I got like one wow. $5 billion. And all together, wow, yes, thank you. So, so if you take his personal treasures that he talks about there in verse 3, and also what he gives in verse 2, this totals $14 billion. Thank you, right? You guys are really good here. $14 billion that David is personally giving to the building of this temple. And then in verse 6, where we kind of picked it up at, he turns to the leaders of Israel and basically says, I want you to give. I want you to give freely out of a want, out of a desire and generously, and the people of God responded with, with great generosity, and actually their giving exceeded the $14 billion that David gave. So all of this, this is what's going on. This is kind of the context. He's providing the financial means, the materials, in order for this building to be built when he dies and King Solomon takes over. Now, what is surprising here, and what I think the author is trying to emphasize in chapter 29 is not only just like the the, the, the amount of dollars and all the, the abundance that's going over here. But what I think he's trying to emphasize here is that there is a, a joyful atmosphere in this gathering. That, it's, that this atmosphere is, is really electrifying. Like over and over you hear this idea of praise and rejoicing. This, this atmosphere of, of giving is a feel of joy. Exuberant joy. Now the best way... I can kind of help us make some connections with this is, you know, uh, basketball is getting ready to start. Amen. If you're a Kentucky Wildcat fan, like it's, 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 it's there, baby. We're excited. We're pumped up. If you're not a Kentucky Wildcat fan, you should be. But move on, right? So there's a couple, like just a couple things that, games that kind of, you know, if I can think about when I was most joyful, like just kind of like electrifying, like almost, you know, hit the TV or whatever it was, there's two of them, right? The first one that I thought about was when uh, Kentucky played Wichita State, and Wichita State was undefeated. Anybody remember that? It was a couple years ago in the national tournament. They were in the second round, and James Young hits that three-pointer that puts them in the lead. Oh, my, they were down one, hits a three, they're up by two, and they win the game. It's like awesome. I, I remember that moment, man. I was like, I almost jumped out of my skin, so excited, yelling and screaming, the joy. Like, you guys know I'm talking about? Anybody experience that moment? All right, if that's not one, the other one that I remember really well, and I know it's kind of, it, it kind of has a bad slant. It's the, it's the Leitner shot, all right? So just so you can go back to that moment. But what I want to remember, right, in that moment, even though it's really depressing, and I read a book about that, and it was even more depressed about it. But Leitner shot, if you go like 10 seconds before that, Ten seconds before that, Sean Woods 
throws out that little leaner banker in the, in the lane, and it goes in, and they are up by one. I was, I was at my wife's uh, uh, college that time, and this is in Ohio where they don't know anything about basketball, right? Buckeyes are, love them, but just a little, little off in the area of basketball stuff. So, dude, I am running up and down the dormitory, like screaming and yelling so joyful to see what happens there, and then it all went down from there. So, like, but here's, like, as best I can show you, that, that's the kind of joy that's going on in this chapter. That's the kind of atmosphere that the writer is wanting us to feel here. And just in case you think I'm off my rocker, let me show you where we see this all throughout this chapter. Verse, verse 9, we see it there. The people rejoiced at the willing response for their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David, the king, also rejoiced greatly. And verses 10 through 13, we'll come back to that in just a minute. It's a, it's a song that David wrote, and this song is a prayer of praise. It's a prayer of celebration. This is who God is. This is what he's provided for us. You go to verse 20, David invites the entire assembly Praise the Lord. Celebrate with me. You go to verse 21. We, we hear that the next day they get up and begin to offer many sacrifices to the Lord. And then we read this in verse 22, which I just love this scene and love to kind of be in this present. They ate and drank. And I'm sure that drinking wasn't grape juice, man. They ate and drank. A little bit of laughter, but not very much. It's okay. Don't be offended. Don't send me emails. They ate and drank with great joy. Not a little bit of joy, but great joy in the presence of the Lord that day. So in case you're still not feeling it, all right, you're not kind of capturing the atmosphere, here's another way of thinking about it. It would be like um, Easter Sunday. If you've ever been with us on Easter Sunday morning, we go big or we go home, amen? And we're loud. You probably thought today was loud. Dude, you come Easter Sunday morning, you need to bring earplugs. We are loud. And we're loud on purpose because we want you to feel this atmosphere of joy. Jesus is alive, right? We're going to come in here and we're going to go for it. That's the atmosphere of what we try to build on Sunday morning. That's what's going on here. But what is surprising is this. That is being generated by doing a capital campaign. That's what's going on. And some of you have been in church long enough, you got that, mm, and it's like, you get, you know what I'm saying? Like, the last thing we think of when we're trying to raise money and trying to build a building and get money to build that building is an atmosphere of joy, right? That's the last thing that we're feeling. We're like, oh, man, I'm really suspicious about this. This is crazy. I don't know about this. That's what normally comes to us when we think about giving or raising funds, not joy. And in fact, if we're all kind of honest, which I pray that we are, even as I read this chapter and you began to hear the word give and gave, some of us went, oh, Lyle's going to talk about giving. Gosh, this is my first time of getting my buddy here, right? I mean, I even got friends here. and I'm going, oh, they're coming the one time when I'm talking about giving, right? That was my natural instinctive response. And I just want to say, why? What's going on in us? 
Or another better question then is this, is that, that how, how in the world can a, a gathering that's about giving to the building of a building, right, can be so joyful? Like how? How can it be such an electrifying atmosphere when David is basically going, I want you to give and calling them out to give? How? I think what we see here is that David had a perspective on life that dominated him to where when he had an opportunity to give, it was a joyful opportunity. I mean, he says it here in this little song he wrote. Look at verses 10 through 12. He, he kind of like unpacks this perspective on how he sees all things and all of life. Look what he says here. Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And look how many times he uses the word yours. Verse 11, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and on earth is what? Yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. In essence, all David is saying in this song that he wrote is this, is that everything belongs to God and everything comes from him. It's all his. And the, and the surprise of this is that when, when these leaders are hearing this, it's sort of shocking to them. And the reason why it's shocking to them is because they are eyewitnesses to how much of a struggle it was for David to become king. It wasn't like he just inherited it. It was a battle. There was hard work. It was difficult. There were wars to be fought. The reason why they're the superpower of this time wasn't because, wow, look, I just showed up. No, there was hard work that came into play here for David to be where he is today. And then David is standing before this assembly and professing, look, I am not taking credit for any of this. All of this comes from God. All of this is given to me by God. And he, he reiterates this in verse 14 when he asks this question. But who am I? Who am I? And who are we, my people, that we should be able to give as generously as this? Look, guys, this questionnaire of who am I is not a question of, like, discovery, right? It's not like David going, I don't know who I am. I need to find my identity. Who am I? Right? That's not the question there. This is actually a declaration of place. Are you, are you following me? This is not a question of discovery, trying to find out my identity. No, this is a declaration of place that David is always downstream. In his relationship to God, David is always downstream. There's never a moment when he's upstream and giving to God. Are you following me? Like giving to God is sort of a myth. It's symbolic here because everything comes from him. I'm always downstream. I'm always getting from God. I'm never giving him anything because he has absolutely no needs. And when you, and when you think about like David's position here, you think about the kind of wealth and success that David has here, man, wow. For him to profess this, 
is pretty profound. Because usually, like if we know ourselves well, that, that whenever we get some amount of success or some amount of like wealth, so to speak, figuratively speaking, whatever it is, or, or we kind of make a name for ourselves, whatever it is, what, what usually happens in those moments or the drift of our heart is not open-handedness and acknowledging all things come from God. It's more close-fisted, that this is mine. I've worked hard for this. I'm entitled to this. I could do whatever I want to do with this because, man, I've put a lot of years into building this. That's not what David says here. I'm always downstream. The smallest way to kind of get this is my parents did a, uh, a very good job, and I'm just thankful for this, the, that taught me to tithe. They did. They taught me that 10% of what I make, get, you give it away. That, that's been ingrained in me since day one of working, trying to ingrain that in my own four boys. Like, you give 10%. And so when you're, when, you're, you know, when you're working at Wendy's, right, part-time, and you get that, you know, $100 check, because back then it was like $3.35 an hour, that was minimum wage. It's like, dude, that's so ridiculous. So when I hear like 8 bucks an hour, it's like, my, that's awesome, right? And even then people complain about that, but man, we were making, whatever. Thanks for laughing a little bit. So, but when you get $100 and then 10% of 100 is 10 bucks. That's nothing, right? That's $10. I can give that. But I remember when I, when I got my first check for $2,000. Now, at that time, I didn't realize that all that money was allotted, right? You know, you got rent to pay and gas to pay, gross to pay, insurance. Like, but at that moment, I thought, dude, I'm rich. $2,000, right? And then all of a sudden, 10% of $2,000 is what? 200 bucks. Oh, wow, I can do a lot more with 200 than I could 10, right? And in that moment, listen to me, in that moment when there is a little hesitation to give, I'm beginning to have a distorted view of my money. And that distorted view is it's mine. That it belongs to me. I worked hard for this. I'm entitled to this. I can do whatever I want to with it. And David, one of the wealthiest men that ever lived and one of the wealthiest men in this time, got it. It's all his. It all belongs to him. So how, how can you have a, a fundraising event to build a building be so joyful? How can you have a, a, a place where David is calling his people to give be so electrifying? He says it again in verse 16. Look what he says. Oh, Lord, our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand. All belongs to you. I'm always downstream. That's how this event can be so joyful. It all belongs to him. I'm just giving back 
what already is his. So, in light of this, like I know there's a lot of avenues you can take to kind of bring some application with this passage of Scripture, but I just want to... I want to bring two questions before us, just a couple questions for us to think on in light of what we, we see in this theme in this chapter. So the first question is this, do you lack joy in your life? Do you lack joy in your life? And so like, look, if you said yes to that, I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize or overly simplify the issues that's going on in your life. And I'm not even saying that this could be the reason I'm just saying in light of this passage of Scripture that this is a good place to start. So, so if you answered yes to that, that I am lacking joy in my life, then I think it's good for us to think, okay, then do I have this perspective on life? Do I see life and my possessions and my stuff and all the opportunities? So this is not just talking about money, guys. It's talking about everything in life. The, 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 where you were born and the family you have and the job you have, the intellect you have, the ability to see things, the creativity that you possess, all of that is from the Lord. So do I have that perspective on life or is my perspective on life more of when God prompts me to give, there's hesitation. When God wants me to open my hands, there's hesitation. And I just want to say, like, there should be a little alarm that goes off in your head when you feel that hesitation because what God is trying to do is he's trying to invite you into the pathway of joy, not misery. And if you don't hear that little alarm in red light when there's hesitation to be open and generous with what your stuff, it's this, guys, like, like, God does not need anything. He's not trying to get you to give in order because he's lacking. He's not trying to kill your joy. He's trying to increase it. So whenever I get a view on life that it's all his, and when he is inviting me to be generous with it, he is actually inviting me to a path of joy. As we see here in chapter 29. A couple weeks ago, I got the opportunity to go to a pastor's retreat that Bob Russell uh, leads. He's been, most of you know who Bob Russell is, and been a pastor at Southeast Christian Church for 42 years. Um, he's now retired, and part of what he does in his retirement is he does these um, kind of monthly pastor's retreat where he invites about eight to nine pastors to come and spend about three days with him. So, I got an invite to do this about a year and a half ago, and I just could not work it out in my schedule. And so six months ago, back in the spring, I got another invite, and I said, okay, all right, I'm just going to do it. You know, I think we'll be okay in October. I think everything will be fine, my family and church life and stuff like that. And so I said yes to it, and just like probably most of you feel and experience whenever you say yes to something six months ago, and then it comes, it's like, I can't do this, right? It's like, I don't have time to do this. Man, this is like this is a horrible time to go away. And anytime I'm gone from the home, it just puts more work on my wife. And I just want to be more sensitive to that in this season. Uh, but I paid and I got to go, right? It's like, I got skin in the game. I'm showing up. And so on the, on the front end, even though I got that back, once you show up, I didn't realize that. But on the front end, you know, like I'm, I'm not looking forward to it. But on the back end, I'm so glad I went. So glad. And it, and it wasn't that, you know, he kind of termed the retreat a time of refreshing, and it wasn't refreshing the sense of relaxing. Like, we were busy from, like, 8 in the morning to 10 at night. So, like, 
Bob Russell says, I planned this retreat around something I would like to do and enjoy. And man, we did a lot of stuff. Like I was exhausted when I got done with this retreat. Like well, when the time was refreshing, but there was a lot of good things in it. So, so there was, and, and, and it wasn't just refreshing or, or, or even like learning anything new. What was helpful for me and what I just left away thinking is just being in the presence of Bob Russell. And there are two things that jumped out at me just being around him. And I, and I get it, guys. Everybody's got their faults and flaws. Like, no one's perfect. But these are the two things that just, you know, um, just came out of him, just being around him. One of them was joy. A joyful presence about him. So here's a guy that's been at it for 40-plus years in pastoral ministry. And I'm telling you what, guys, it was refreshing to see someone in their 70s that's been in pastoral ministry that was so joyful. I mean, guys in their 40s, and they're bitter and angry. So it's almost like, all right, I can do this, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I can get on the other end and still have a smile, right? It's like, it was so helpful for me. The second thing was his generosity. And he was extremely generous over this three days. And I would say that those two things are not mutually exclusive. I think one leads to the other. Generosity and open-handedness about all of life leads to joy. I read a book a couple years ago by a guy named Ronald Rollheiser. Interesting name. Uh, it's called Sacred Fire. And anytime I make reference to books up here, guys, I, I hope you know that I'm not saying read it and and devour everything, right? There's, I think it's, there's something good about reading people you may not fully agree with, all right? And so there's a lot in this book that I'm just totally on board with. But there's some of it's like, oh, I don't know about that. And so you got to be very discerning. But there's a, the last chapter in this book, man, is so beautiful about God's abundance and his generosity. And he kind of gives us another angle of thinking about this idea of joy. Listen to what he says here. Jesus assures us that the measure we measure out is the measure that we ourselves will receive in return. In essence, that says that the air we breathe out will be the air we will re-inhale. That is not just true ecologically, it is a broad truth for life in general. So if we breathe out pettiness, we will breathe in pettiness. If we breathe out bitterness, then bitterness will be the air that surrounds us. If we breathe out a sense of scarcity that makes us calculate and be fearful, then guess what? Then calculation and fearfulness will be the air we inhale. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound very joyful, right? But if I'm aware of God's abundance, and even David said that in verse 16, the abundance that we're given to you, over $14 billion is God's. He's the one that provided all this. So if I'm aware of God's abundance, then we breathe out generosity and forgiveness. We will breathe in the air of generosity and forgiveness. We will re-inhale what we exhale. So do you lack joy in your life? Maybe it's because of this, you're holding tight instead of responding to God's gracious, kind invitation. Open up. Be generous. It's not yours. You're always downstream.
Second question. And I was assured in the first service that this was a word, okay? Who are you imaging? Now, that sounds weird, right? Imaging, right? So like, could you, well, I wanted you to remember it. So who are you imaging? And what, what, what you got to see in chapter 29, if you go back and read it, it feels like God, right? It just feels like God, this joy and this giving and this overabundance that's going on here. It just feels like him. It looks like him. This, I mean, it just re- reiterates God's presence there. And in this chapter, Ronald Rollheiser says this, God, as we see both in nature and in scripture, is what? He's over generous. He's over lavish. He's over extravagant. He's over prodigious. He's over rich and over patient. If nature, scripture, and experience are to be believed, listen to this, God is absolute antithesis of everything that is stingy, miserably, frugal, narrowly calculating, or sparing in what he doles out. Thank God, right? God is prodigal, and prodigal means wastefully extravagant and lavishly abundant. Is that... Is that what you image forth? Because, look, guys, if if you're a follower of Christ, then the Spirit of God comes and dwells in you, and part of the Spirit's work is to to kind of rebirth you and renew you to be an image bearer of him. The image of God that's placed in all of us has been distorted by sin. And so when the Spirit of God comes in you, he's redoing that, remaking that so that you can be a witness, not just in what you say, but also in what you do so that when people get around you, it's like, wow, I felt like I was in the presence of God because you were generous. There was an abundance, a joy that came out of you. Who are you imaging? I listened to a, uh, a podcast a couple weeks ago. Um, uh, by, they were interviewing this guy named Kevin Finch, which most of you don't have a clue who he was, and I didn't either. And the only reason I listened to it initially is because he was the nephew of uh, Eugene Peterson. Uh, guy loved to love to read, and I thought, well, this might be pretty interesting and stuff. And so here's a picture of him, and you might be familiar with this, Jared. I don't know, maybe not, but um, but Kevin at one time was a pastor. He's now a leader of this ministry called the Big Table, which is a ministry serving people in the food industry. And so when he moved up to Washington State, he was pastoring a church, and this, this local paper basically came to him, found out he kind of had an English background, and said, hey, look, we want you to go around and eat at these restaurants and then write a review. And so Kevin is a lover of food, and he goes, okay, let me, let me make sure I'm understanding what you're saying to do here. You're going to pay me and pay for my meal to go eat at all these amazing restaurants, and all I got to do is write a review? I'm on board, right? So... <laughs> So he did this, and as he did this, he uh, got to know the servers, and they would get to know one another, and, and a lot of dialogue and talk about food and the joy of food, and, and where should we eat, and where's the best place for Thai, where's the best place for a brunch, all these kind of things. Lively conversation once they kind of found out what he did and really enjoyed it. And so, and eventually, in the midst of this conversation, because he doesn't do that full time, and they knew that, they said, well, what else do you do? And he said, I'm a pastor. And immediately, when he would say that, the conversation stopped and everyone left. And so eventually he found one of the ladies and said, hey, this, is, this has been my experience so far. You know, 
we'd get in a lively conversation about stuff, you know, sharing life together and talking about food and all. It's really wonderful. But as soon as I share with them that I'm a pastor, it's like cockroaches. <laughs> like they're gone. They see light and they're out of here. Like why? He says, I know why. And I'll quote you what you said. Oh, that's easy. I hate Christians. They're the most demanding customers, stingiest tippers, and they often take the table too long to study the Bible. I hate Christians. We beg not to work on Sundays. It's the worst shift of the week. Now, I know, like, some of you will sit here and say, well, you know, that's not me. Look, if you're a Christian, you're a part of a body. Christianity is not me and Jesus. Christianity is we. And we, as a body, reflect and image God. And this is an indictment on us and convicting. What if it was the very opposite, right? What if we as a community said, you know what? <laughs> That's not how it's going to be. We want to image the generosity of God. What if we said, no matter the service, right? No matter if it's good service or poor, poor service, I'm going to tip generously, kind of over and above, beyond what they would ever expect. It's just kind of interesting to me how we as followers of Jesus Christ will walk into a restaurant with the mindset that I'm going to tip based on how well I get service. That is so anti-gospel. Thank God that God doesn't dole out grace based on how well you perform. None of us in this room, including me, would be in very good shape. But what... What is mind-blowing, what image forth God is when you've got poor service and you give a 25% tip. That's groundbreaking. That's life-changing. That's creating a different mindset toward the Christian community that is supposed to image forth a God of abundance who's like this at all times. No matter if they're a follower of Christ or they call themselves a Christian, it does not matter he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He is gracious towards all people. And what a shame that servers, and guys, I don't, like, like I, I've asked this question. You can ask Chad Nuss. He's been working at Macaroni Grill for years. You ask him the reputation of Christians in this community. It's that. They don't want to work on Sundays. What if it was different, man? One last quote from Ronald Rollheiser. He says this. God invites us. In fact, I would say he empowers us to be generous. When we have a sense of God's abundance, we can risk having a bigger heart and generosity beyond the instinctual fear that has us believe that because things seem scarce, we need to be more calculating. Jesus warns us about the dangers of riches, but he also makes a distinction between the generous rich and the greedy rich. The generous rich are good because they radiate and incarnate God's abundance and generosity, while the greedy rich are bad because they belie, or another word for that is contradict 
God's abundance, generosity, and huge heart. Who are you imaging? Who are you putting on display? So as we close, we always close with communion. And guys, it's not, it's not because that's what we have to do or it's kind of ritualistic. It's, it's because we believe that the way to end a service is for us as a body to think and reflect upon the generosity of God in Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian, we ask you to come forward, break a piece of bread off, dip it in wine or juice, whichever your conscience permits, and wine is always more by twine. And as you come this morning, my encouragement for you, because you can't do this. The, the, the end application is like, hey, go and try to make this happen. No, the end application is you've got to look to Christ. You've got to see him. You've got to see the generosity of God being put on display for the whole world. And by seeing that, it shapes and forms your being to become a generous person. So as you come, Christians, like, like think about how God has been so generous to you in Christ. He didn't spare his son, but gave him up freely, willingly. If you're not a Christian here, then I want you to do the same thing. Don't take the meal, right? Because this meal's not for you. But take the one that this meal points to, and that is Jesus Christ. May you sit and think about how generous God has been toward you through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.